Okay, uh, we we are in so many time zones right now that it's it's literally insane. Uh, Callum, you're in Budapest, right? Actually, I'm in Vienna right now. Uh, okay. I'd like to lay claim to the beautiful books behind me, but they're actually a friend's. And and Brian is in the People's Republic of Los Angeles. Yeah, I, somebody's got to fight the good fight, man. So I've yeah. got to stay here and uh, and make sure I stay armed. Are you are you last man standing? I think it's me and maybe you know Dave Rubin hasn't left yet, but otherwise uh, yeah. all my compatriots have fled the state and are currently, I think, being hunted down by Joe Biden's goons. So <laughs> this 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 show might be the worst one we've all ever done, or it might be the best one. But I'll explain to people a little bit of uh, context for why we've gathered, and then I want you guys to give a little bit of your background so so they understand. I think I think some folks certainly know who Brian is, who watch my show, but uh, maybe not Callum. Um, so we were in Vienna, Austria, uh, two or three weeks ago, I guess, um, at the tenth um, anniversary of the Austrian Economics Comp conference sponsored by the Austrian Economic Center based in Vienna, Austria. And uh, uh, Brian turned out to be the moderator of a panel where I presented a paper on Hayek's scientism as a critique of, of pandemic socialism and, and Fauchism, which is a new deadlyism. <laughs> and and um, I'm sure the, the organizers had this in mind, but, but Callum then presented just a fascinating talk about about scientism and the collapse of of experts and whether or not that's an apocalypse or an opportunity and maybe it's an apocalypse with an opportunity and I'll have him explain that in a minute but afterwards and I, and I swear there was no alcohol involved we all gathered and and had what I thought was a really interesting conversation and someone kept saying we should have recorded this so now we're going to try to record it and see if the three of us who come from very different uh, backgrounds and skill sets and and countries and everything else. Um, I, I just thought it was an interesting conversation that that dovetails quite nicely in in what we're seeing happening in society and and perhaps going to give us a little bit of optimism about that. But but let's start with you, Brian. Um, you are kind of kind of a crazy man, but but you have skills too, right? <laughs> uh, well, yes, thank you for that, uh, that lovely introduction. Yeah, I am, I am a little bit insane. My wife and daughter will attest to that. And I've passed on some genes, hopefully to my daughter who will be equally insane. But yeah, I mean, my background's in public relations. Uh, you know, I'm a crazy Philly guy, I live in Los Angeles and have been doing PR for now almost 20 years. So I have a lot of uh, components I try to bring to the forefront on um, you know, Lines of Liberty, which is where I have my podcast and Electric Liberty Land, focusing on changing culture, bringing in communications, trying to adjust the way we communicate the ideas of liberty and trying to come across as less than hateable, which is, of course, what we're best at. And yeah. Um, and yeah, to your point, we had that great conversation. And while you say there was no alcohol involved, I prepped for this call to try to recreate the circumstances. So I ate. Yeah, it's, there you go. Calvin's got a little wine. I I uh, I have a tiny bit of Bailey's in my coffee because it's early where I am. But I am a little hungover. I ate an entire pig last night to recreate the pork atmosphere of Vienna. And um, yeah, and I've got a, a ton of caffeine in me. So I, I think we're going to nail this thing. Yeah, I, I feel like I should step off set and go get a beer at this point if we're, if we're all drinking. <laughs> I mean, you might as well. Yeah. Even my dog's drunk. Look at him back there, yawning like an idiot. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Callum, do you have a dog on set, or yeah, are you I going alone? Two, there are two beautiful cats upstairs, and I was hoping one of them would come down to join me, but they're camera shy, it seems, so I'm afraid not. Though if so they join me, you will see. 
Um, give, give us a little bit of your background because you're, I'm, I'm not sure exactly where you're teaching right now, but uh, you are an, an anthropologist with all sorts of letters after your name. You've studied really deep thoughts at really important places. Uh, well, I, I, some people might uh, contest the depth of the thoughts, but um, the, uh, no, I, I've, uh, my background was uh, first in anthropology and then I um, uh, studied uh, international migration, and then I did a PhD in human geography. Um, but my interests are quite uh, broad. I'm currently uh, a visiting fellow at the Danube Institute, which is a think tank in Budapest in Hungary. Um, so that's really where I am right now uh, for the for the next year. Yeah. Um, and how did you, um, uh, this be a question for both of you, but, but I'll start with you, Callum. How did you find the Austrian Economics Conference where you, where you presented this paper I want to talk about? Uh, how did it go or how did I discover how it? How did you find it? How did you how did you find the conference itself? Oh, fantastic. I thought it was a really, really stimulating conference. Um, it was nice to see people. I saw a few talks there that were quite um, uh, not provocative for me, but 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 well, maybe for us, but. It was nice to see a conference come together of people who were speaking quite honestly about what they thought. Um, and I heard a lot of because uh, there's so many issues in the culture right now where there is need for a dispassionate uh, approach that is not just mouthing the sentiments of the prevailing culture. And it was nice to see people actually do something in quite an old school way of just say, look, rigorously, this is what I think is happening, regardless of what we think about it. So um, certainly when it came to discussing COVID and so on, there was more uh, concern about uh, an expression of concern about, uh, you know, whether lockdowns have been disproportionate and so on. So on that front, I thought it was a really, really good conference and uh, some very, very good people. Yes. Uh, shout out. It was, it was my first academic conference in at least 30 years. And, and I got to pretend to be smart for a day. And that was kind of cool. Um, <laughs> I don't know if I fooled anybody, but uh, uh, Brian, well, a, had, you, had, had you ever done an academic conference before? It's not really your thing, right? It, it's it's not, oddly enough, you know, as, as intelligent as I come across at all times. No, uh, it's not. It was my first time as well. And, um, you know, big thanks to, to Federico and Britt, obviously, for, for flying me out there and Barbara. But, yeah, I thought it was pretty incredible as well. You know, I was telling you this. It, it reinvigorated a lot of my passion for libertarianism and the liberty movement, free markets, because you kind of get a little bit worn down. Uh, in the United States, kind of preaching to the choir and seeing how the politics are going. And it was a real shot in the arm for me, seeing everybody so enthusiastic, seeing the, uh, I guess, the variety of people. You know, we kind of have one stereotype type of person in the U.S. that's the libertarian. You know, it's uh, that's a lot of neck beards, you know, <laughs> but seeing these different people, women, in fact, women at a libertarian event was uh, shocking and invigorating. So, um, but yeah, it was my first time speaking in an academic conference. And of course, I didn't give a paper. Mine was more just kind of a talk about the uh, the culture and impacting things through art. But um, I just couldn't stop cracking myself up talking to all these politicians, you know, members of parliament from Croatia and the uh, UK who nodded along and, and uh, furrowed their brows at my deep thoughts. And, uh, you know, it's just hilarious when you step back <laughs> and think about it. <laughs> Little did they know who they were talking to. <laughs> So, so let, let's get into this. I, I want to, and I, I'm going to read the title of, of your presentation, Callum, because I, I think it sort of captures everything we want to talk about. The problem with experts, science and scientism in the post-truth age. Mm. And I, I, I think in, in context of, of what we're going to talk about, I feel like all of us in our different um, roles 
in in educating and engaging and and trying to understand the world we're we're sort of part of this counter revolution against the kind of expertise that you're describing in your paper but give us give us a general thesis of what what your talk was about sure um so the paper was entitled as you said the problem with experts um science and scientism in the post truth age and uh, my basic point is that obviously in the last few years we've seen um, a lot of loss of confidence in sort of technocratic forms of expertise. And um, and often people see this as a sort of epistemic apocalypse, a knowledge apocalypse, you know, the a cataclysm. But, <coughs> excuse me, um, just getting over the flu a couple of weeks ago. Um, the uh, So a lot of people see it as a kind of uh, a knowledge apocalypse of people are losing faith in the, in the truth. But it seems to me that uh, something else may be going on. And it's worth noting that the word apocalypse actually has two meanings. The modern meaning is cataclysm, but the original meaning was the revelation of what has previously been concealed. And I think there's really two ways in light of this we can view the post-truth age. One is people irrationally losing faith in objective truth. And the other is people quite rationally coming to realize the emperor had no clothes. And I think this is something we've seen growing over the last 14, 15 years. I mean, starting probably with the financial crisis, I remember quite famously, Alan Greenspan came out looking very baffled at a press conference after 40 years in which he'd been lauded as this, this guru of finance. And he came out at a press conference and said, with touching naivety, he said, um, he said uh, the problem is, I think our theory of how the world worked was wrong. It was a very interesting concession because it presumed that previously he thought he had a theory of how the world worked, which is um, an interesting hubris. And, um, but I think that was the first crack and I think what we've seen since in lots of areas of culture, uh, people come to realize that the emperor had no clothes. So for instance, with uh, Afghanistan, there was this uh, evangelical, evangelical faith that we not only had liberal democracies, but we had a theory of why we had liberal democracies and we could flat pack and export this to other countries as if it was an IKEA assembly chair and, and bring it to other countries. And the lie has been given to this idea that you can have a, a technocratic formula for democracy by the, the failure of nation building in Afghanistan, and certainly the fact that the efforts there have proved to basically be the equivalent of political economic Esperanto. It was something they tried to apply to Afghanistan, this idealized view of how you should live. And actually, it just all dissolved into smoke as soon as the people advocating it and evangelizing for it left. Um, and you can see it also in, in what's happened, of course, with COVID, that uh, you know we can all agree, or hopefully we can agree that COVID is real and, and you know, and the, the epidemiology of COVID has been pretty good and the virology has been good and the vaccine stuff has been, you know, I think, pretty good. But the but the question of the proportionality of lockdowns is simply not a question that science can answer. And yet governments have been saying for the last 18 months or almost two years now saying we're following the science and our policies. But the question of the proportionality of a lockdown. So, you know, the question of whether there's anything more important in life than the avoidance of death, for instance. Um, whether lives matter more than livelihoods, which I think is a false dichotomy to begin with. All these sorts of questions are as much questions of value and culture as they are science and fact. They're, much, they're as much about the subjective values we have, such as our culturally relative, subjective, quite personal views of what is an acceptable level of risk. Um, they're as much about that as about the science of the disease itself. And we've seen this culture in which we've the politicians have given up their uh, not just their capacity, but their their obligation to discuss these subjective questions, to decide who are we as a culture. And they said, oh, the scientists will decide it for us. Even the scientists are not actually qualified 
or even informed enough to talk about subjective questions of value. So there's been this reframing in the culture of many forms of expertise as only scientific forms. And I think people are beginning in the culture to see that this is uh, that the emperor has no clothes. These people are not um, objective authorities about what should be subjective questions. And so you can see it in finance, we can see it in Afghanistan, we see it with COVID. You can also see it in the climate debate, which is a whole other discussion. Um, so so, so uh, that, you know, it's what's interesting about that, and and you've you've actually put some some intellectual rigor to a, a general theory that I've had um, first as someone that that organized people and someone that participated in politics and now as someone that tries to use democratized media to engage people, um, all of those old top-down structures, expertise, institutional expertise, whether it be in media, in government, um, in, in corporations, wherever, all of those top-down things that, that credibility has collapsed in large part because people now have access to alternative points of view. And that's that's sort of why why you guys, Brian, why you started that podcast. You're like you're you're one of the OG libertarian podcasters. Um, did you know that you were doing that at the time, or you're just like, hey, let's do some stuff? I mean, it was more along uh, the lines of let's do some stuff. And, well, we were impassioned, you know, impassioned young bucks out there thinking that the world is actually uh, capable of being changed and got slapped down quite a few times. But you know now it's like you're like you're saying you come to the point where you say okay people are actually able to find other points of view and maybe that's a good thing or bad thing dependent on sorry my daughter's shrieking in the next room apologies for that if it's coming through the audio um, people are able to find their own points of view which I think is a good thing and a bad thing in the way that you know while I'm trying to communicate to people the ideals of liberty I'm trying to communicate to people how in which they can change the world in which they live in and question the values that are being passed down from mainstream media there are an equally proportionate number of people who have sought out the exact opposite message or are being fed the exact opposite message so I always look at the democratization of media and what we're doing as in it's good to preach to the choir. It's good to to sell a message, but we have to find ways to expand that message to reach the people that are going to be naturally resistant. And I think to Callum's point about the way in which people trust these experts and and view this moral, um, basically a moral equation passed on through the scientism, right, of abandoning their own moral judgment because the science tells us to do a certain thing. I feel that they have built up these massive barriers now to any other point of view that's going to be going contrary. And so we have to work extra hard to find ways to break through, to find the cracks in which we can kind of filter through, you know, like water seeping through uh, through a, a deep sand bed to finally reach these people in a different way where they're not going to simply resist it um, flat out. And that's a challenge that we have, you know, in any medium. Yeah, like I, I think about um, specifically Anthony Fauci when sort of backed into a corner by Senator Rand Paul, um, he you, he was so palpable that he was disgusted that he even had to engage the right. uneducated <laughs> on whether or not he knew what he was talking about. But he would then go on uh, probably MSNBC, I don't remember anymore. And he said, and I think this is a verbatim quote, uh, frankly, any questions any attacks on me are ultimately a question on the science itself. And he said something even stronger just a couple of weeks ago. And that's that's the uh, that's that bubble that experts live in that they would actually have to defend their ideas and their worldview to to people in a in a democratized conversation. And and frankly, we we didn't really have that on COVID. The experts did it, 
and then they use the power of the state to force us to do it. Um, but it, um, you know, to your point, Callum, the the problem with this is that we need expertise, and and experts actually serve a function in society. But one of the things I'm seeing, particularly in the context of COVID right now, um, the credibility of of medical research itself is put at risk because of guys like Fauci who make these absolute statements that turn out to be absolutely wrong. And then he just reverses himself the next day. And for some people, they're like, okay, they're none of these guys are worth anything. And they're, they're sort of throwing the baby with, out with the bathwater. Yeah, I mean, I, I think there's a very important point to make here in general that when people are, I mean, for instance, the stuff I do, I'm quite critical of certain forms or certain over uh, certain expressions of overreach by, uh, you know, technocratic experts. But the reason I have that view is not because I have no respect for expertise. Uh, it's precisely because I do. And I, what I don't like seeing, and I think it's very dangerous, is when you have people who are crying wolf or people who are, um, uh, are not rigorous, but rather very ideological in what they're doing. And one of the problems is, and I, I and I think Brian just spoke to this a minute ago, which is that one, one of the problems is that the criticisms that I think are needed of the way lockdowns have been discussed or climate is discussed or or even when I've, there was the intervention in Afghanistan, the way that was discussed, the criticisms that are needed are not really criticisms of fact. The thing we're fighting is actually a frame of reference. It's the entire waters we're swimming in are increasingly culturally, not at a scientific level, at a cultural level, the sentiment and the, the tropes of the culture are very hostile to the sort of rigor that was actually quite normal, say, 20 to 25 years ago. Um, so I think that's the, the big problem that we all know that when you're speaking to someone and they're hostile, not just to the letter of what you say, but more generally to the spirit of what you're saying, it's very difficult with that sort of audience to continue to even complete your sentence because you can feel the lack of faith in the room. You can feel the skepticism, not even to your argument, but to the general tenor of the argument, the spirit of it. And I think that's what we're, we're often fighting is, is this um, is a culturally received um, uh, uh, um, orthodoxy where any challenge to it is seen as some sort of uh, uh, apostasy, which which I think is uh, is an unhealthy frame of reference. In a sense, I think we're no longer fighting debates on scientific terms. We're fighting a certain theological view of what science should be, which is not true science, hence it being scientism. Yeah, and and that was the that was kind of the basis of my paper. I, I noticed. Um, when Fauci made that claim, which basically amounts to I am the science, and I noticed uh, the, the almost religious fervor by which uh, lockdowns were embraced and 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 masking as a form of of virtue signaling and and even um, vaccination is not not a um, reasonable thing to do in the face of a dangerous virus, but as a sacrament. Um, yeah. Look at the baptisms going on with the children right now. I've seen a million of them posted on social media. You know, it's here you go. Take the sacrament. My child has been, you know, gifted communion of vaccination. Here you go. Allow me back into the church. Yeah. And it it goes on and on and on. And, and you know, I think we've all had the experience. I've, I've been uh, vocally critical of, of particularly lockdowns since March of 2020, um, not because I'm an epidemiologist, but because I, I have a fairly good understanding of the economic trade-offs involved with with a policy that would actually lock us all down. It would be it would be a cataclysmic disaster that humanity had never seen before. Um, but then it became 
something different where some some people were deemed essential and other people mm-hmm. were deemed non-essential and it just got weirder and weirder one of the interesting things about lockdowns is the the public health community and epidemiologists before 2019 were actually on the same page saying that this would be a humanitarian catastrophe knowing full well that there is an intimate link between health and wealth so so something something weird happened where they just flipped a switch and they actually ignored their own expertise and decided uh, you know we're we're going to we're going to do this big global experiment and see what happens that wasn't a question was it <laughs> well, I mean, I, I you know, I, I can I jump off that no problem. I mean, it is what was shocking to me was how quickly it got rolled out. And also the fact that these people and this is, you know, I, I talked about this briefly uh, at the end of the, the talk I did at the conference. But, you know, I kind of come around to this bad people theory as to why they enrolled these lockdowns out. Right. And it was an experiment on a global scale, as you said. And yet we've seen that the lockdowns statistically have zero effect. It didn't stop the role of COVID. It didn't you know, have any measurable impact on the health of a nation, but economically the health of the nation was drastically impacted. Yet we've seen now Germany lockdown and you know, we've seen Austria lockdown. We have you know the concentration camps that they've created for the COVID population in Australia and COVID adjacent, you know, people that are negative there. They're doubling and tripling down on this. And my theory behind this is that, you know, even the epidemiologists now they know that they have done so much damage to the population, to people's well-being, to children. God knows how many other effects are going to be rippling out from this. That if these things are true, if they if they are to blame for this, and there was no real reason behind it, there's no real science behind the lockdowns. They are the worst people, horrible people. You know, can't look yourself in the mirror, can't talk to your child because you are just the biggest scumbag the world has ever seen. And we now have half the population in most countries that have cheered these lockdowns on. And now they have so much, you know, pot committed, to use a poker term, they are so pot committed that they cannot back off of this because the ramifications emotionally, economically, uh, culturally, and their communities are so deep that they cannot allow it. They have to be right at this point. Well, I've always thought about it as in terms of uh, not not the people that are invested in lockdowns now, but the politicians and public health experts that very much own that issue, um, it would be highly costly for them, perhaps in terms of political power and credibility to turn around and say, you know what, I was I was 100% wrong. Uh, we're gonna backtrack on this and we're gonna pursue a more reasonable strategy. But but maybe to, to Cullum's point, it's, it's a more existential threat to admit that you were wrong if your entire paradigm is expertise. Do you, do you think that's possible? Yeah, I mean, uh, this is the problem is that they, they've invested themselves into a particular view. And, uh, and, and if, you're, if, you're, if your identity is tied to not a, a process, it used to be to some extent, I don't want to idealize this too much, but it used to be that we understood in liberal democracies that the most important thing was not necessarily the outcome, in terms of which party you were, it was about the maintenance and the integrity of the process, the democratic process, and so on and so forth. And I feel that across many, many issues now, we it could be it could be this, it could be the way Brexit was prosecuted in the UK. Um, many, many issues now we are losing track of the importance of process, and uh, that we think if the process doesn't fit our outcome, be it from the left or the right, that therefore there's a problem with the process. So, for instance, you've seen in the states the I think the Democrats have talked about 
They didn't get in the Supreme Court justice they wanted because actually the process was abused, but they didn't follow on, you know, the Republicans didn't follow the norm about, um, uh, you know, with um, the guy a few years ago, uh, the person at the end of Obama's first term, the Republicans uh, resisted um, a a late term Supreme yeah. Court justice. I think the Democrats, and then, then I think they had the same thing happened again under Trump, but now the Democrats are saying, oh, well, we need more Supreme Court justices. And uh, that's just uh, as soon as you start trashing the process, then you have no more rules and ends, things end up being basically real world Calvin ball. I don't know if you know Calvin and Hobbes. The great <laughs> of course. There's a brilliant game in it where they play this game where the only rule is there are no rules and you can make them up as you go along. And what we're increasingly seeing across the political spectrum right now, independent of anyone's politics, it can be from the, the right or the left, is you're seeing a lot of real world Calvin ball where if people don't like the uh, the outcome, they just think, well, we should change the rules. And it's it's madness. And by, by the way, my cat, my cat has now joined the show, and and viewers are getting a nice shot of his butt right now. Tell. Yep. Yeah. It's a uh, perfect timing. Calvin Ball in effect, right there. Uh, you, know, you know, to uh, to your point, Callum, about this the abdication of the process. I think it was even on Joe Biden himself said something, and I'm I'm paraphrasing here, but effectively speaking to the fact that because they couldn't put rules into effect quickly enough during COVID and during these other things, you know, there's an acceptance of authoritarian rule, abandoning the process where you go through the Senate, where you go through the House, where you create bills, and instead trying to get this streamlined way of operating in that allows the government to operate so much quickly or, or so much more quickly to attack and address uh, crises as they come up. But yet, when you adopt that, and basically he was looking to China as a model of how effective they were against COVID, when I would argue they haven't been any more effective than anybody else, but are reporting numbers that might be made out of, you know, it's pulled out of a hat. But this is the preaching of the application of the process of democracy in lieu of terrifying people into accepting of authoritarian regimes that can, yes, operate faster, but now none of us have any say in the process. And we've seen this play out during COVID in effect and, you know, to the detriment of all of us. Yeah, I think the the problem here is uh, is I really believe it's it's not really a political problem in the sense that it's not a party political problem. It's a deep cultural malaise where increasingly, no matter where people are coming from, there's almost a sort of um, uh, there's there's a there's a, a complete obsession with what I call content over context. Everyone is so preoccupied with their particular thing they're focused on, like almost like a train spotting mentality. You're fixated on the detail. And no one's pulling back and saying, well, what's the, the what is the cost of fixating on that detail to the sense mm -hmm. of context? And ultimately, the context of everything we have are really the set of norms and rules by which society operates. And it can you can mean this politically in terms of the norms and rules of our institutions, um, but also interpersonally, you know, just the norms of civility, which used to exist between people. They're all things that have been destroyed through online discourse, where everyone is a bit of a prick now online. It doesn't matter if they're, <laughs> they're coming from. And, that's the new norm. And it's, it's very toxic and corrosive. I, I think we've, we've all lost sight of, I think if we took any of us from 20, 25 years ago and, and dropped us in a time machine to today, we'd all be kind of horrified at the, the loss of civility institutionally and interpersonally. And I think it's something we need to be very more conscious of and to view in a far less partisan fashion than I think has been viewed. You know, we have this thing, um, and, and maybe it's a global thing, but definitely in the United States, um, when you're on Twitter, there's there's a substantial amount of disdain for blue checks, um, people that have been officially um, acknowledged by Twitter. I happen to be a blue check, so I'm, I'm probably part of the problem, but- uh, it, Anointed. Yeah, <laughs> it gets, uh, um, 
I, I assume at some point they're going to take it away from me if they don't just shut my account down altogether. But it, it gets to the, this problem with experts. And, and I think in your, in your paper and in your talk, you, 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 you defined an expert basically as someone that knows more and more about less and less, mm. at least that side of the brain. I think it's the left side of the brain. And, and unable to sort of step back and, and the, the experts that designed, tried to redesign Afghan society from the top down is a classic example of what Hayek would, would call uh, not only central planning socialism, but a, but a fatal conceit that you could possibly redesign a complex culture from the top down. Um, to, to me, that was, it wasn't a failure of, of the neocons as much as it was a failure of, of central planning and, and the inability of the very smartest people, presumably in the world, to, to redesign that culture in a way that was inconsistent with, with thousands of years of, of tradition and a million and zillion things we just don't understand. Yeah, I mean, there's a there's a real tyranny in the culture of the, an assumption that general theories exist of how of how not just how the world is, but how it ought to be, and uh, and there's a presumption that these theories exist, that we can discover them, and then we can apply them with success, and that really kind of assumes often that we are minor minor or, or gods, because often when we think take Afghanistan for example, example, but often the theories of international development as a similar idea in general, uh, there's a presumption that we can know the truth, which presumes we are omniscient. Uh, that we can apply the truth, which means we are implies we are om, omnipotent, and that therefore, because we are omniscient and omnipotent, we should be omnipresently legitimate everywhere to do so. And so we should go into every country and develop them in the image of something that we think is just or right or or so on, uh, or even an image we have of ourselves. And it's uh, and all we see is failure because of this. And it's a uh, this tyranny of of general theory is, as you say, this uh, it, it's it's a very abstracted uh, it's a way of thinking that's very content focused on the theory and often ignores context. Uh, Rory Stewart, the former international development secretary for the UK, but also a brilliant writer who's written about Afghanistan. Um, he's uh, uh, made the case that you, when you read these documents that were written by the international aid community on when they were trying to intervene in Afghanistan and develop it over the last 20 years, he said, if you read the documents, um, if you word search them, they were full of words like governance, synergy, cross-cutting cross -cutting initiatives, all these types of jargon of the Kennedy School of Government. And they're all written by these very brilliant sort of uh, usually quite young products of institutions like the Kennedy School of Government. Um, but he said, if you word search these documents for any words that were specific to Afghanistan, any words like, uh, for instance, Islam or Pashtun or uh, Northern Alliance, um, none of these words appeared in the documents. And he made the point that if you word search the document for Afghanistan, removed it and replaced it with Botswana, you couldn't tell which country the document was about. And it's this, this sort of um, this, this uh, very uh, abstracted technocratic language, which is often grammatically correct. Internally, it feels it has a, a certain logic, but it's, it's, it's hermetically sealed from real, from real life. And this is, we have this tyranny of this way of seeing things around the world because it's applied in a very doctrinaire, abstracted manner. And there's a certain naivety in it, but it's a naivety that is dangerous because it has impacts and it leaves vacuums behind, which have been filled in this case by the Taliban. Yeah. And it like there's sort of a, a tyranny of of credentialism and and I wanna I want to get into sort of woke culture as well, because because you've talked about that, but but um all along 
there's been this, and, and it's go kind of goes back to the blue check thing, where if you were a non-epidemiologist, you weren't allowed to say anything about the government's response to COVID. But it it kind of applies to everything, where you know people with the right formal training are the only ones who are viewed as legitimate arbiters of of this process of of social debate. And and this goes all the way back, and this was the basis of, of my paper on our panel. This goes back to Frederick Hayek's critique of uh, Henri de Saint-Simon, who was um, both the uh, founding father of socialism. His students actually coined the, the, the phrase just a couple uh, de- days or months after he died. Um, but his ent- entire concept of reorganizing society from the top down was was really that fetishizing of science and credentials. And he thought that if we just got the right engineers and physicists and biologists um, and we gave them power, it w- we could we could rationally reorganize society. He actually suggested a science of politics that could somehow the science could be settled and we could stop all of this human interaction and arguing and and bickering that we do in open societies and just replace it with the, the final plan. And it's, um, we now know what happens when you do that, but it seems like we've almost reverted back to this, that we're gonna fetishize the experts and, and, and dissent will not be tolerated. Yeah, I can just say on that, there's, there's a really interesting sort of fallacy at the root of a lot of those sorts of um, views of the world, which essentially are social scientific views uh, in the sense of emphasis on the science, the idea that we can have a science of society. And the basic fallacy to me is, while the study of things, what proper science studies, you know, physical things, while the science, while the, the study of things is a unity, there's fundamental laws of physics that apply everywhere, for instance, the study of people is a plurality. Um, we all know that, you know, everyone, all three of us and everyone watching this, if we all asked everyone the same question, if I gave you you know, a, a book to read or even just this this shelf to look at. And I said, tell me a story about this shelf. You could tell me an infinite number of stories. You could talk about its aesthetics. You could talk about uh, its uh, what what it was on it or the culture around, you know, what culture has produced shelves and books that go upon shelves and, uh, you know, the printing press and so on. Or we could talk about where the, uh, how it was made. We can talk about where the uh, materials came from. We could talk about what materials are. We can talk about the, the history of the global political economy that's led all these materials to be here from the forests of the Amazon or wherever this is from. Or um, So there are all these different stories we could tell, but the fact of this doesn't change. But the, all the interpretations, there's almost an infinite variety. And indeed, on our opinions on most things, I mean, not only do we all have different opinions on whether, for instance, this shelf is beautiful. I may disagree with myself by the end of the day, depending on what had happened. Um, so we we sometimes forget that the study of people is not the study of of a unity. It's a study precisely of a plurality. And where people are plural, as soon as you try and apply a monist singular framework onto it, as Saint Simone was trying to do, you do a certain violence to the human condition. And all I'd add to that is that the there's a great Canadian band uh, called the Tragically Hip, and I'm in Vienna right now, and they have a song called Springtime in Vienna. And my favorite song, and, and my favorite line in that song, even when I was younger and I didn't know what it meant, I just loved the line is we live to survive our paradoxes. And we all know that if you read any literature, you know this human condition is a paradoxical position. But all of these social engineers presume the human condition is a unity, it is a consistency that is just, they will reveal it to us. But I'm, I already know in a sense who I am, and I'm a bundle of contradictions, thank you. 
and I want to be left alone with those contradictions. And um, so there's, this is the problem with these sort of general theorists is that they fundamentally misunderstand what it is to be a person in, in my view. Yeah. I, I, by the way, I love your podcast uh, forthcoming from Callum. It's uh, Tales of the Bookshelf, where Callum will go into all the different stories about the bookshelf they mentioned. He's yeah. eight episodes in. It's fantastic. Don't miss it. Uh, you know, something you said right there actually keyed something I think very important. You know, mentioning the fact that you have these social engineers, and especially tying into the woke culture like you were talking about, Matt, you have people that are trying to impose their will on society. And as you said, it is committing violence to try to take away people's individuality and put them in these specific boxes. And that's the irony to me of so much of the woke movement, the woke politics, the way in which they're trying to socially engineer society, the way in which they're trying to tear institutions down that have existed you know, culturally that are very vital to democracy, to freedom of thought and thinking and free speech. They are committing this violence, but of course they're using as a justification in committing this violence, the you know argument that we have committed so much violence in the past that it now has to be remedied. It has to be reconfigured and uh, we have to redo society and their model. And I just find that completely, uh, you know, the hypocrisy is so deep to me in the entire woke movement because of that. Yeah, I mean, I find, I mean, I'm, I guess I'm having to catch up because it, certainly in the United States, um, we're having this um, important debate about wokeism and critical theory and critical race theory and and sort of reimagining history and biology and all this stuff. Um, but the one thing that strikes me, it, it it almost feels like it goes back to, you know, Saint Simone was also also the father of positivism and and this this idea that there is just one truth. And and that we could get at it through rigorous scientific uh, um, uh, research, and once we got there, it was done. But 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 the beautiful thing, and this is this is why I, I think under underneath all the politics of sort of people responding so so angrily at, at wokeism, is is a defense of of this beautiful thing that we find in our diversity and our contradictions. And this whole process of working things out that that probably looks, I mean, there's a technical economics term for that. And when you take a snapshot, it's a shit show, right? Um, but it's also the process that creates really beautiful things that we could not have imagined. And that's that's why I tend to be a short-term pessimist and a long-term optimist, because I do believe uh uh, following Adam Ferguson and Hayek and and all of these intellectual guys that I love, that people have a way of figuring stuff out as long as they're free to engage in that process of of arguing and debating and buying and selling and and all the things that that we libertarians celebrate. And if you stop that process, you all you do is you create enemies of people that shouldn't be enemies at all. Well, let me ask you this: talking, you know, kind of jumping off of that. You know, talking about these these new people that are kind of the gatekeepers of conversations about diversity, about culture, about interactivity between people, about education. You know, you know, tying into our experts conversation here and how experts are, are really going to be a problem. Do you guys feel that the creation of so many new classes of experts is really to blame for all of this? I mean, when you look at the check marks, when you look at all of the new studies, the new fields that are coming out of colleges, these are newly branded experts in fields that really don't need experts to begin with because they're simply standing in the way of clear communication. I mean, I've, uh, I would think on that that uh, the, the question is the chicken or the egg. I mean, are, are those are those experts the source of the problems we're facing, or 
is there a general tenet of the culture that's that's incentivized people to be these experts of you know knowing more and more about less and less and i think the general trajectory of the culture towards that uh there's a there's a guy called um, there's an old um, historian or philosopher of history called uh, Oswald Spengler who wrote a history uh, called The Decline of the West 100 years ago. It's a very peculiar book, but the introduction is uh, almost like uh, you know almost like a bit of performance art. It's, it's a wonderful. Uh, I'd re I recommend the introduction to people. I wouldn't read the whole book, but he says a culture. Um, he says a culture is a good thing. It's organic. It's dynamic. It's creative. But ultimately, in the end, it sort of ossifies into sort of what he calls a civilization where everything is everything is uh, governed by very strict rules and, and, and rituals and so on. And it becomes a kind of stiff culture that's ossified, almost fossilized. And um, interestingly, in my talk I gave in, in Vienna, I referenced Ian McGilchrist, who's a psychologist, and he's written a book called uh, The Master and His Emissary. And he, his basic argument in this book is that he was trying to explain what is the left and the right brain? What do they do? And he says, basically, the left brain um, is uh, very. It's the part of the brain that essentially evolved to zoom in on details. So when you're eating food or hunting for something, you need to zoom in on the detail. But the right of the brain really pays attention not to content that you zoom in on, but context. So who's trying to eat you, essentially? And he says, so really the difference in the sides of the brain are how they pay attention. But the crucial thing with this book is he says, um, he says throughout, he argues that throughout human history, cultures that have a balance between the left and the right brain, that have an appreciation <clears throat> of content and context in balance. So you need technical detail content, but you also need a kind of philosophical political view of the context. So for instance, you know, talk about the vac talk about the, the virus, talk about coronavirus, but also be aware of the political economy that you'd be affecting by lockdowns, for instance. He says the problem is you have a culture that has a balance, but in the end, the left side of the brain that should be the emissary to the master, which is the, the contextual side of the brain, begins to think it's all it needs to know. You don't need to know about context. And this is where we see in our culture now, and he says every culture that's collapsed in human history has basically forgotten the value of the right side of the brain, and it's ossified into this left-brained view. And, and he says what we can see in the culture now is very much that sort of stage, which you can find trace throughout the history of different cultures that collapsed, the Roman Empire, the Greeks, and so on. And uh, which I think is, is quite a compelling argument. And uh, so I think it, there is a general tenor and trend in the culture. And Spengler noticed it 100 years ago. So it's been going on a while. But increasingly now we're seeing as a symptom of that, this proliferation of people who know, as you say, more and more about less and less. So I, I, I now I now get to cite my favorite Canadian band, which is not the tragically hipped, but a, but a band called Rush, um, which I talk about way too much. But uh, <laughs> um, there is an album, and, and of course, the philosopher King of Rush was a guy named Neil Peart, who was their drummer and their lyricist. And, and he was having this argument primarily with music critics who had described an earlier album, 2112, as, as sort of a, a neo-fascist Randian thing that, of course, I don't think that in any way goes together at all. But but he was dealing with a music press that was that was highly sort of communist and calling him a fascist for believing in individualism. And he he produced this album, I think one of their technically one of their best albums called Hemispheres. And it's a reference to the two sides of the brain that he refers to as the heart and mind. It's a slightly different configuration, but but you've you've mentioned it as well. And and to me, it is a it a, is a perfectly encapsulates the solution to all of this. If we want to work together and we have common ground, let's do that. He says it more beautifully than that. 
If you want to pursue your own path, that's fine too. Um, but it's the heart and mind united that that actually is the entire puzzle that allows for for people to get along and to cooperate and do things. Um, so I, I feel like, uh, you know, the, the guys you're quoting, super important, but but I feel like Neil Peart's got it better. I'll concede he's got it better, but I wouldn't say he's the best band in Canada. <laughs> well, he definitely got laid more yeah. than most economists, so we could give him that, most philosophers. Uh, one thing I wanted to, I, I think I mentioned this actually during our talk, we're trying to recreate it, but we were talking about the left brain, right brain, and how people are really locked into this one point of view and, you know, be logically correct. And do you think social media has really amplified that in the way in which we think about things? You know, it's, we talk about people ignoring the context. Social media is a prime example. The way in which we digest media, you know, Twitter especially, people take a quote out of context that proves their point and then they forget about the context or proves that someone's a racist or proves that someone should or shouldn't be listened to and thus their opinion can completely be discarded. And it seems that that social media is really driving that abdication of context. If I just link what you've just said to what you've just said, Matt, uh, it's very interesting. The, uh, Matt, you mentioned the heart and the mind is the, the hemispheric difference. And, and, and Brian, you just mentioned social media and what, what's happening. And it makes me think that the, the distinction I make is that, we, you know, the mind is about narrations and the heart is about relations, you know. And I think the problem with social media and I think social media absolutely has exacerbated the problem, because if you think about what's happening on social media, it's a purely narrational space. Your entire identity on there and indeed the reason you gain followers is nothing to do with your actual relations with people, the connection, actually meeting someone. But it's all about the narration of yourself. It's the uh, this fascination now that people have with their identity or indeed their truth, this sort of cognitive view of themselves uh, as an idea, whatever that idea may be, um, uh, is, is for me very strange because I wouldn't know how to know what my truth is in any sense that I could express in words. Um, and uh, but what's interesting on social media is your entire identity is reduced to these words. And I think this is why people are so flinty and defensive on social media, because we've shifted from a culture where I am me and I believe X. Now we say, oh, I simply identify as X, as a, a mm -hmm. Brexiteer or a Remainer or a Trump voter or a never Trumper or whatever it is. Right. We now have these as our identities. So as a consequence, is it any surprise that when someone criticizes the things we believe, people get very uh, take it very personally because they have expressed themselves online that those ideas are their identity because there is no other way to connect to people online than through these narrative avatars. And I think what's happening as a consequence is social media is completely separated from, almost schizophrenically, schizophrenically split from the relational, the actual meeting of someone. Uh, Louis C.K., the comedian, has a great piece on this where he says, you know, when we use our phones, people send a mean tweet and you don't see the person on the other side being hurt by it. But he said, when we were a kid, people say, kids say mean things because they're learning empathy because you see, you say, he says, you say something mean to someone, and you see the kid's face and you think, oh, it feels bad to hurt someone, but we don't see the impact online. So I think you're absolutely right, Brian. Social media is exacerbating this, but I think it's precisely because what Matt was saying that we have a culture that's all narrational about the mind is no longer relational about the heart, which is about the other it's about the others around us. And you know, we don't meet people online. We're, we're yeah. tweeting to the void. Uh, it's not a space where people listen. It's a place where people talk. And there's a yes. big difference in that. 
yeah, I it just, you know, to, to expound on that a little bit more, you know, in my, my career public relations, a lot of brands will try to engage with people on social media, right? It's a very important portal for them. You can have that back and forth with customers and you can build a customer relationship, but that's very far from a personal relationship. And it's very much a, uh, as you said, it's a one way medium, especially when it comes to people's personal opinions, because oftentimes, and I do it now, you know, I, I will, I'll have some conversations on Twitter, but half the time I just block somebody. You know, and this is what we do. We'll, we'll throw out a conversation, but if somebody, if I deem it to be below my, my intellectual level, you know, as meager as it is, I will decide this person's not worth my time and simply block them or unsubscribe or whatever it is. And I think you see that spreading faster and faster, in which case, yeah, it is a one-way medium. We're not getting context. We're not getting people's responses. And uh, people are viewing themselves as this monolithic entity and that they are empirically correct and no one can challenge them. You know, this I've struggled with, uh, and it it bothers me, and I've I've struggled to figure out why. But this phrase, "my truth," seems to be when I hear it, it sounds like you're ending a conversation that you can't actually engage somebody who who has a different perspective on things. Um, and in in some ways, it's 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 radically objective, but in other ways, it's totally arbitrary, um, because to, and and it it and it does. I think a disservice to the most important journey of trying to figure out truth, right? The the process of 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 trying to figure out what's right and wrong and 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 that there is at some point an agreement on some basic thing that you move on from. And that's that's very important. Um, and that may be, as Hayek would suggest, a very subjective process, even even when it comes to the natural sciences, a good scientist is at best trying to figure out an objective reality that works without presuming that he knows all that much about it um, versus this this idea that um, you can't question my truth. Um, and if you do, you're you're you know fill in the blank, whatever the pejorative on social media is. Um, and and as and as a white guy, I'm guilty of all the sins. <laughs> so I can't even engage in those conversations. Yeah. Well, I think also it's something interesting wherein, you know, trial and error, right? Pat, yeah, we're talking about science. We talk about trial and error. You want to find the truth through through this constant churning process. And when you have your truth, you you cannot ever find the trial and error because everything else is someone else's fault as well. Not only is it your reality and your truth, but in the way in which our culture operates now with the victim culture as it is, anything that goes wrong is not necessarily your fault. It's not a problem of your own education. It's not a, a problem of your own effort. It is always someone else's problem, someone else's fault, and there's always someone to blame. So there is no evolution. There is no trial and error. People are not building and getting stronger or learning new skills or learning how to adapt. They simply are staying in the cocoon and never becoming the butterfly because why do it? You know, there's no reason to. You're, you're perfectly, you're, you're perfect as a pupa or pupa, however you say that. Yeah, that, say that, that three times fast. <laughs> I, I don't know. I don't know if it's pupa. I'm not sure. Pupa, pupa, <laughs> pupa. The strange thing about the the whole obsession with one's personal truth is that, you know, a lot of these people who are talking about it are people who are quite young, uh, people in their early twenties and so on. I don't know about you guys, but you know, I, I certainly didn't have any insight, and I was quite conscious and quite insecure about the fact that I didn't have much insight on on how to behave sometimes and and so on when I was in my twenties. It was I was immature, and people are. And I, I feel that as I've got older, it's not that I've come closer to knowing my truth. I think I've just come, to, uh, it's not that I've perfected myself in a sense, I've just come to accept I'm very imperfect. But there is at a mental level, there's a certain calm that comes with accepting that, well, you know, like 
I am imperfect and, and things aren't going to get better now necessarily. But that breeds more patience with people. It, it, it dissolves the tension in you, the insecurity, because you're no longer comparing yourself to other people, not because you've perfected yourself and therefore you're impervious to comparison. It's that you just get tired of the comparison. And, it, and so there's, the, the obsession with truth is, is, is very peculiar to me because precisely as I've got older, I've realized the uh, aridity of any attempt to establish a truth, a narrow sense of who I am. Um, and uh, this is why I find it a very peculiar trend, because it flies in the face of every type of you know, wisdom, which has been generated basically by every culture in the course of human history, which tends, I mean, uh, I can't remember if Socrates or Plato said, uh, you know, was, I think Socrates saying, uh, you know, the wise man knows how little he knows. And and we and and I, I those types of you know they're 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 sort of standard phrases but they're you know but there's truth in them you know I mean there is truth in that but the truth the only truths I know is truths that tell me there are no truths in a sense and yeah. that, that real uh, um, a sense of calm in the world doesn't come through finding the truth it's accepting that even if it exists it's not in my ken. And I think that's actually probably for the religious is probably the source of faith is to say there are certain questions that are beyond me, but someone has it under control. You know, there's a faith that someone knows. And I imagine that's the essence of the calm that some people get through religious faith. It's not knowing, it's trusting and that someone knows. And um, and this is the thing I find is interesting that people are obsessed with truth. Perhaps what they need to learn is trust. And a lot of these people talking about their truth seem to be defined by a suspicion of others, a lack of trust in society and other people. You know, the great theologian Frank Zappa famously said, um, information is not knowledge, knowledge is not wisdom, wisdom is not truth. And I might have gotten that quote right. Um, but but I, as for me, as as the oldest guy here, I can tell you that um, with, with age, you sort of develop the humility of realizing that you don't know nearly as much as you thought you did and I was I was sort of an insufferable uh, Randian when I was a teenager, and we of course had everything figured out. And it's it's very humbling to to realize um, that you don't know nearly as much as you think you do, which is to me at least the beginning of forming a little bit of wisdom about how the world works. It's interesting you mentioned the word humility because uh, I think the essence of all of this it really is precisely that theme. And, there's a great quote from T.S. Eliot in The Four Quartets, and he writes, the only wisdom is the wisdom of humility. Humility is endless. And it, it, for me, it's one of the most profound sentences in the English language or, or, or bits of poetry in the English language. Um, and I think it's absolutely true that I think what we have today, and we see this returning to all the themes we've talked about, Afghanistan, uh, COVID, uh, uh, climate, whatever you want to talk about, the woke stuff. Uh, what there is, we have, a, we have a, an epidemic of hubris and we have a complete deficit of humility. And uh, this sort of scientism we started talking about is ultimately a form of hubris. It's a hubris that says, not only can science be a guide to facts, it can also be a guide to our values that should inform how we make sense of the facts and how we apply them and how we interpret them and how we contextualize them. And uh, this is the, the problem that we, we now think that there can be a science of our values, which is what Sen Simone is essentially saying when he's trying to socially engineer things, uh, is presuming that human values there is an objective truth that we can know it and we can act upon it, that we are omniscient, that we can be omnipotent and therefore we are legitimately omnipresent to change, every, to intervene on everyone's lives. And that's the essence of hubris. And you see the pattern of that thinking in all of these debates around COVID, around climate, around social justice stuff. 
um, uh, the financial uh, world and, and, in, and Afghanistan. It's, it's, a, it's an epidemic of, of hubris and an absolute absence of humility in my view. So we've we've gone on quite a while and and but I want to I want to end with a question for both of you um, because my my take is that we're in the middle of a cultural paradigm shift the democratization of everything and and despite all of the the censors and and social media scolds and attempts to sort of whack a mole us into submission to to sort of fall back in line um, I feel like something really beautiful is happening in all of this chaos and people are learning how to work with each other and to relate to each other in this radically democratized world where we're going to learn the opposite of what the central planners want. We're gonna learn that we're all different and, and but there's, that there's like a, a cool opportunity in our differences to, to do something better. So my question is, um, and I'll start with you, Brian, are you, are you optimistic or are we totally screwed? Uh, I'm actually unbelievably optimistic. It may not come across any necessarily in my uh, talks today, but no, I, I'm very much uh, white-pilled, as they say. Uh, I do think that, to to your point, we are at a, a real juxtaposition or juxtaposition wherein we're about to change, where people are going to hit the wall as far as, and you're already seeing it, by the way, in the younger generation. I've talked to a lot of people that are, um, you know, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18. These people are so beyond sick of being told what to think, what to do, that they're evil, who they can and can't assort with or consort with, what media they can imbibe. Um, they are looking for a change. They are sick of it and they want to just interact as human beings and find ways to communicate with each other and find commonalities rather than how they're different. So I am very much optimistic about the future. Um, and I think that you know, this entire COVID, is, as horrible as it's been, has really forced the narrative, you know, seeing how the media is handled, seeing how we've been told what we can and can't post on social media, seeing the rampant censorship has put people in the point where they say enough is enough. We need to get back to, to human interaction the way it was. And I think that you're going to see it very quickly. Um, you know, as soon as, as soon as the authoritarians let us out of the house and let us consort again, I think you're going to see it really, um, really skyrocket. Callum, what do you think? Well, I mean, I just say, first of all, just to contextualize about what I'm about to say, the almost exactly 500 years ago uh, were the reformations, 1517 is when they started, and they were going on in 1520 for a couple of decades. And it's interesting, the reformations quite famously were made possible by the invention of the printing press in the mid uh, um, 15th century. And, um, and without the printing press, there simply wouldn't have been the Reformations because the Reformations were about the proliferation of pamphlets and books, which challenged the monolithic orthodoxies of the Catholic Church. And, um, and what that led to through the Reformations was a couple hundred years of uh, trauma and strife in Europe. And ultimately, then you had the, Ref the, the Enlightenment that came out of it, where people were developing new rules to deal with this proliferation of ideas as people were saying, how can we make sense of what is true, given there's so many competing sources of it, which were made possible by the printing press? And it seems to be now what we're facing is uh, we've had the invention of computing, of uh, the internet and social media and so on. And I think this is leading almost exactly 500 years later to uh, to the what I call the, the deformations in our culture rather than the reformations. And uh, it's interesting, if you look at what happened with the printing press, it took a pretty underexposed picture of the world where there was just a few authorities giving you information to a site enlightening of it, quite literally um, um, giving more information. And as any photographer knows, you know, an underexposed picture is not a clear picture. But as any photographer also knows, an overexposed picture is not a clear picture either. And I think the problem, if the problem back then before the printing press was an underexposed picture, 
It seems in the age of the internet, the problem we face is an overexposed picture. There are too many competing sources of knowledge. And the problem we face now is not finding knowledge, it's triaging the knowledge we're exposed to. And I think that's the problem we're facing now is the reason society is polarizing and, and defraying so much is precisely because there are so many competing narratives. We live in a culture of authors, not authorities now. Everyone's an authority if they've got enough followers on Twitter. And so whether I'm optimistic or not, uh, I think what we need to be is constantly vigilant to recognize what sort of stage we're in, to recognize, to diagnose the problem. And I think the problem is, is the sheer plurality of these competing uh, points of view now. And uh, we need to be, and I, I, I worry that, you know, it's going, it's eroding our empathy uh, because we are so obsessed with these infinite variety of narrations. We are forgetting the relations. We are so involved in the hubris of our narrations. We forget the humility, which is so important to maintaining relationships. And I think that uh, if we can recapture a sense of humility, if we can re-establish the, the primacy of relations over narrations, we'll be okay. But in the meantime, it's quite possible that these narrations just, just you know, we keep fighting fire with fire and we'll end up with inferno. And, um, and I think that the only thing I'd end in saying is the solution really comes around to people recognizing that if the most important thing in your life is your convictions, well, just remember that uh, convictions implies that we are imprisoned by our beliefs. And if we, we need to break down those prisons and find the ability to escape into the real world where often the other person is more important than what we think. So that's uh, uh, so I'm optimistic if we can refine the humanity and things in the humility. I think you've I think you've given us uh, at least part of our project. And I, I love I love the way that you say that. Uh, let's quickly and I'll start with you, Callum. Is there any place that people can find you or your stuff? I know that your speech. Um, at the Austrian Economics Conference, if you search on YouTube, Austrian Economics Conference 2021, and type in Callum, um, you can find that. You can find my talk as well. You can find Brian's uh, pod um, with, I forget who those guys were, but you you did a bunch of stuff. Like you were, you were like the center of attention at that, but that's one place. But where else would you like to steer <laughs> people to? Well, I work for the uh, Danube Institute in Budapest at the moment. I also teach a few courses on um, uh, at the University of Cambridge. I teach a course on the impact of social media, um, which is like a 10 lecture course, and uh, you can find that online. Um, I'm writing a book about the impact of social media right now. I'm trying to finish it this month. It'll be out next year, hopefully. So uh, more to come. Um, and uh, But uh, basically look up the Danube Institute in Budapest and uh, there's work by me and some other good uh, people there as well who are worth uh, checking out. Brian. Well, uh, you know, you can find me at Lions of Liberty and uh, my show Electric Liberty Land, which is every Wednesday. I also, if you want to uh, to listen to me just rail about reality TV and uh, and curse a lot and, and make jokes, you can find me on The Boring Podcast, B-O-H-R-I-N-G. And uh, yeah, it's funny, uh, the he said, I, I did a bunch, I did a, a it was, um, by the way, the uh, people who were on there was Spanish Libertarian and Agent Tomash, who was uh, one Pole and one Spaniard. But uh, yeah, find me anywhere. You can find me on Twitter, of course, uh, railing as well. And uh, hope people do. I, th I think the next time the three of us convene, we should get at the real important issue. And that is that cats are morally superior and <laughs> more inclined to be individualists than dogs who have sort of a communist predilection. I, I yeah, think this was a crucial part of our conversation that we've tried to reconstruct. I think that was the core, that was the keystone of the arch of the discussion we had, and we've not talked about it. Yeah, so I, agree. Yeah, I completely agreed. So, yeah. so part two to come, if you guys are game, um, I think we should tear that issue apart.
Anytime. I love uh, love both of you guys. Love the talk. Matt, thanks for putting this together and uh, look forward to the next one. Thank you, guys. Thanks, Matt. Cheers, Brian. Cheers. That was amazing. Where can I get more content just like that? It's a great question. You're clearly a discerning consumer of the best content. Make sure to like the video, subscribe, and click the bell. And if you're consuming podcasts, go to Apple, Stitcher, anywhere you get them. I'm in. Kibbe on Liberty, honest conversations with interesting people. Mm-hmm.